therapists who had talked with him about how bad he felt. Theater gave him a chance to deeply and physically experience what it was like to be someone other than the learning disabled, oversensitive boy that he had gradually become. Being a valued contributor to a group gave him a visceral experience of power and competence. I believe that this new, embodied version of himself set him on the road to becoming the creative, loving adult he is today. Our sense of agency, how much we feel in control, is defined by our relationship with our bodies and its rhythms. Our waking and sleeping and how we eat, sit, and walk define the contours of our days. In order to find our voice, we have to be in our bodies, able to breathe fully and able to access our inner sensations. This is the opposite of dissociation, of being out of body and making yourself disappear. It's also the opposite of depression, lying slumped in front of a screen that provides passive entertainment. Acting is an experience of using your body to take your place in life. The Theater of War Nick's transformation was not the first time I'd witnessed the benefits of theater. In 1988, I was still treating three veterans with PTSD, whom I'd met at the VA, and when they showed a sudden improvement in their vitality, optimism, and family relationships, I attributed it to my growing therapeutic skills. Then I discovered that all three were involved in a theatrical production. Wanting to dramatize the plight of homeless veterans, they had persuaded playwright David Mamet, who was living nearby, to meet weekly with their group to develop a script around their experiences. Mamet then recruited Al Pacino, Donald Sutherland, and Michael J. Fox to come to Boston for an evening called Sketches of War, which raised money to convert the VA clinic where I'd meet my patients into a shelter for homeless veterans. Standing on a stage with professional actors, speaking about their memories of the war, and reading their poetry was clearly a more transformative experience than any therapy could have offered them. Since time immemorial, human beings have used communal rituals to cope with their most powerful and terrifying feelings. Ancient Greek theater, the oldest of which we have written records, seems to have grown out of religious rites that involved dancing, singing, and reenacting mythical stories. By the 5th century BCE, theater played a central role in civic life, with the audience seated in a horseshoe around the stage, which enabled them to see one another's emotions and reactions. Greek drama may have served as a ritual reintegration for combat veterans. At the time, Aeschylus wrote the Oresteia trilogy, Athens was at war on six fronts. The cycle of tragedy is set in motion when the returning warrior king, Agamemnon, is murdered by his wife, Clytemnestra, for having sacrificed their daughter before sailing to the Trojan War. Military service was required of every adult citizen of Athens, so audiences were undoubtedly composed of combat veterans and active-duty soldiers on leave. The performers themselves must have been citizen soldiers. Sophocles was a general officer in Athens' wars against the Persians, and his play, Ajax, which ends with the suicide of one of the Trojan War's greatest heroes, reads like a textbook description of traumatic stress. In 2008, writer and director Brian Dorries arranged a reading of Ajax for 500 Marines in San Diego, 
and was stunned by the reception to it. Like many of us who work with trauma, Dory's inspiration was personal. He had studied classics in college and turned to the Greek texts for comfort when he lost a girlfriend to cystic fibrosis. His project, The Theater of War, evolved from that first event, and with funding from the U.S. Department of Defense, this 2,500-year-old play has since been performed more than 200 times here and abroad to give voice to the plight of combat veterans and foster dialogue and understanding in their families and friends. Theater of War performances are followed by a town hall-style discussion. I attended a reading of Ajax in Cambridge, Massachusetts, shortly after the news media had publicized a 27% increase in suicides among combat veterans over the previous three years. Some 40 people, Vietnam veterans, military wives, recently discharged men and women who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan, lined up behind the microphone. Many of them quoted lines from the play as they spoke about their sleepless nights, drug addiction, and alienation from their families. The atmosphere was electric, and afterward the audience huddled in the foyer, some holding each other and crying, others in deep conversation. As Doris later said, Anyone who has come into contact with extreme pain, suffering, or death has no trouble understanding Greek drama. It's all about bearing witness to the stories of veterans. Keeping Together in Time Collective movement and music create a larger context for our lives, a meaning beyond our individual fate. Religious rituals universally involve rhythmic movements, from davening at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, to the sung liturgy and gestures of the Catholic Mass, to moving meditation in Buddhist ceremonies, and the rhythmic prayer rituals performed five times a day by devout Muslims. Music was a backbone of the civil rights movement in the United States. Anyone alive at that time will not forget the lines of marchers, arms linked, singing, We Shall Overcome, as they walked steadily toward the police who were massed to stop them. Music binds together people who might individually be terrified, but who collectively become powerful advocates for themselves and others. Along with language, dancing, marching, and singing are uniquely human ways to install a sense of hope and courage. I observed the force of communal rhythms in action when I watched Archbishop Desmond Tutu conduct public hearings for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in 1996. These events were framed by collective singing and dancing. Witnesses recounted the unspeakable atrocities that had been inflicted on them and their families. When they became overwhelmed, Tutu would interrupt their testimony and lead the entire audience in prayer, song, and dance until the witnesses could contain their sobbing and halt their physical collapse. This enabled participants to pendulate in and out of reliving their horror and eventually to find words to describe what had happened to them. I fully credit Tutu and the other members of the commission with averting what might have been an orgy of revenge, as is so common when victims are finally set free. A few years ago I discovered Keeping Together in Time, written by the great historian William H. McNeil near the end of his career. This short book examines the historical role of dance and military drill 
in creating what McNeil calls muscular bonding and sheds a new light on the importance of theater, communal dance, and movement. It also solved a long-standing puzzle in my own mind. Having been raised in the Netherlands, I had always wondered how a group of simple Dutch peasants and fishermen had won their liberation from the mighty Spanish Empire. The Eighty Years' War, which lasted from the late 16th to the mid-17th century, began as a series of guerrilla actions, and it seemed destined to remain that way, since the ill-disciplined, ill-paid soldiers regularly fled under volleys of musket fire. This changed when Prince Maurice of Orange became the leader of the Dutch rebels. Still in his early twenties, he had recently completed his schooling in Latin, which enabled him to read fifteen-hundred-year-old Roman manuals on military tactics. He learned that the Roman general Lycurgus had introduced marching in step to the Roman legions, and that the historian Plutarch had attributed their invincibility to this practice. He wrote, It was at once a magnificent and terrible sight to see them march on to the tune of their flutes without any disorder in their ranks, any discomposure in their minds or change in their countenances, calmly and cheerfully moving with music to the deadly fight. Prince Maurice instituted close-ordered drill, accompanied by drums, flutes, and trumpets in his ragtag army. This collective ritual not only provided his men with a sense of purpose and solidarity, but also made it possible for them to execute complicated maneuvers. Close-order drill, subsequently, spread across Europe, and to this day the major services of the U.S. military spend liberally on their marching bands, even though fifes and drums no longer accompany troops into battle. Neuroscientist Jak Pangsep, who was born in the tiny Baltic country of Estonia, told me the remarkable story of Estonia's singing revolution. In June 1987, on one of those endless subarctic summer evenings, more than 10,000 concert-goers at the Tallinn Sang Festival grounds linked hands and began to sing patriotic songs that had been forbidden during half a century of Soviet occupation. These song-fests and protests continued, and on September 11, 1988, 300,000 people, about a quarter of the population of Estonia, gathered to sing and make a public demand for independence. By August 1991, the Congress of Estonia had proclaimed the restoration of the Estonian state, and when Soviet tanks attempted to intervene, people acted as human shields to protect Tallinn's radio and TV stations. As a columnist noted in the New York Times, imagine the scene in Casablanca in which the French patrons sing La Marseillaise in defiance of the Germans, then multiply its power by a factor of thousands, and you've only begun to imagine the force of the singing revolution. Treating Trauma Through Theater It is surprising how little research exists on how collective ceremonies affect the mind and brain and how they might prevent or alleviate trauma. Over the past decade, however, I have had a chance to observe and study three different programs for treating trauma through theater. One, the Urban Improv in Boston, and the Trauma Drama program it inspired in the Boston public schools and in our residential centers. Two, the Possibility Project, directed by Paul Griffin in New York City. And three, Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, which runs a program for juvenile offenders 
called Shakespeare in the Courts. In this chapter, I'll focus on these three groups, but there are many excellent therapeutic drama programs in the United States and abroad, making theater a widely available resource for recovery. Despite their differences, all these programs share a common foundation, confrontation of the painful realities of life and symbolic transformation through communal action. Love and hate, aggression and surrender, loyalty and betrayal are the stuff of theater and the stuff of trauma. As a culture, we are trained to cut ourselves off from the truth of what we're feeling. In the words of Tina Packer, the charismatic founder of Shakespeare and Company, Training actors involves training people to go against that tendency, not only to feel deeply, but to convey that feeling at every moment to the audience, so that the audience will get it, and not close off against it. Traumatized people are terrified to feel deeply. They are afraid to experience their emotions, because emotions lead to loss of control. In contrast, theater is about embodying emotions, giving voice to them, becoming rhythmically engaged, taking on and embodying different roles. As we've seen, the essence of trauma is feeling God-forsaken, cut off from the human race. Theater involves a collective confrontation with the realities of the human condition. As Paul Griffin, discussing his theater program for foster care children, told me, the stuff of tragedy in theater revolves around coping with betrayal, assault, and destruction. These kids have no trouble understanding what Lear, Othello, Macbeth, or Hamlet are all about. In Tina Packer's words, everything is about using the whole body and having other bodies resonate with your feelings, emotions, and thoughts. Theater gives trauma survivors a chance to connect with one another by deeply experiencing their common humanity. Traumatized people are afraid of conflict. They fear losing control and ending up on the losing side once again. Conflict is central to theater. Inner conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, family conflicts, social conflicts, and their consequences. Trauma is about trying to forget. Hiding how scared, enraged, or helpless you are. Theater is about finding ways of telling the truth and conveying deep truths to your audience. This requires pushing through blockages to discover your own truth, exploring and examining your own internal experience so that it can emerge in your voice and body on stage. Making it safe to engage. These theater programs are not for aspiring actors, but for angry, frightened, and obstreperous teenagers, or withdrawn, alcoholic, burned-out veterans. When they come to rehearsal, they slump into their chairs, fearful that others will immediately see what failures they are. Traumatized adolescents are a jumble, inhibited, out of tune, inarticulate, uncoordinated, and purposeless. They are too hyper-aroused to notice what is going on around them. They are easily triggered and rely on action rather than words to discharge their feelings. All the directors I've worked with agree that the secret is to go slow and engage them bit by bit. The initial challenge is simply to get participants to be more present in the room. Here's Kevin Coleman, director of Shakespeare in the Courts, describing his work with teens when I interviewed him. First we get them up and walking around the room. 
then we start to create a balance in the space, so they're not walking aimlessly, but become aware of other people. Gradually, with little prompts, it becomes more complex. Just walk on your toes, or on your heels, or walk backwards. Then, when you bump into someone, scream and fall down. After maybe thirty prompts, they're out there waving their arms in the air, and we get a full-body warm-up. But it's incremental. If you take too big a jump, you'll see them hit the wall. You have to make it safe for them to notice each other. Once their bodies are a little more free, I might use the prompt. Don't make eye contact with anyone. Just look at the floor. Most of them are thinking, "Great, I'm doing that already." But then I say, "Now, begin to notice people as you go by, but don't let them see you looking." And next, just make eye contact for a second. Then, now no eye contact. Now contact. Now no contact. Now make eye contact and hold it. Too long. You'll know when it's too long because you'll either want to start dating that person, or to have a fight with them. That's when it's too long. They don't make that kind of extended eye contact in their normal lives, not even with the person they're talking to. They don't know if that person is safe or not. So what you're doing is making it safe for them not to disappear when they make eye contact or when someone looks at them, bit by bit, by bit, by bit. Traumatized adolescents are noticeably out of sync. In the trauma center's trauma drama program, we use mirroring exercises to help them get in tune with one another. They move their right arm up, and their partner mirrors it. They twirl, and their partner twirls in response. They begin to observe how body movements and facial expressions change, how their own natural movements differ from those of others, and how unaccustomed movements and expressions make them feel. Mirroring loosens their preoccupation with what other people think of them, and helps them attune viscerally, not cognitively, to someone else's experience. When mirroring ends in giggles, it's a sure indication that our participants feel safe. In order to become real partners, they also need to learn to trust one another. An exercise in which one person is blindfolded while his partner leads him by the hand is especially tough for our kids. It's often as terrifying for them to be the leader, to be trusted by someone vulnerable, as it is to be blindfolded and led. At first, they may last for only ten or twenty seconds, but we gradually work them up to five minutes. Afterwards, some of them have to go off by themselves for a while, because it is so emotionally overwhelming to feel these connections. The traumatized kids and veterans we work with are embarrassed to be seen, afraid to be in touch with what they are feeling. And they keep one another at arm's length. The job of any director, like that of any therapist, is to slow things down so the actors can establish a relationship with themselves, with their bodies. Theater offers a unique way to access a full range of emotions and physical sensations that not only put them in touch with the habitual set of their bodies, but also let them explore alternative ways of engaging with life. Urban Improv. My son loved his theater group, which was run by Urban Improv, known as UI, a long-standing Boston arts institution. He stayed with them through high school and then volunteered to work with them the summer after his freshman year of college. It was then that he learned that UI's violence prevention program, 
which has run hundreds of workshops in local schools since 1992, had received a research grant to assess its efficacy, and that they were looking for someone to head the study. Nick suggested to the directors, Kippy Dewey and Sissa Campion, that his dad would be the ideal person for the job. Luckily for me, they agreed. I began to visit schools with UI's multicultural ensemble, which included a director, four professional actor educators, and a musician. Urban Improv creates scripted skits depicting the kinds of problems that students face every day. Exclusion from peer groups, jealousy, rivalry and anger, and family strife. Skits for older students also address issues like dating, STDs, homophobia, and peer violence. In a typical presentation, the professional actors might portray a group of kids excluding a newcomer from a lunch table in the cafeteria. As the scene approaches a choice point, for example, the new student responds to their put-downs, the director freezes the action. A member of the class is then invited to replace one of the actors and show how he or she would feel and behave in this situation. These scenarios enable the students to observe day-to-day problems with some emotional distance while experimenting with various solutions. Will they confront the tormentors, talk to a friend, Call the homeroom teacher. Tell their parents what happened. Another volunteer is then asked to try a different approach so that students can see how other choices might play out. Props and costumes help the participants take risks in new roles, as do the playful atmosphere and the support from the actors. In the discussion groups afterward, students respond to questions like, How is this scene similar or different from what happens in your school? How do you get the respect that you need? And how do you settle your differences? These discussions become lively exchanges as many students volunteer their thoughts and ideas. Our Trauma Center team evaluated this program at two grade levels in 17 participating schools. Classrooms that participated in the UI program were compared with similar non-participating classrooms. At the fourth grade level, we found a significant positive response. On standardized rating scales for aggression, cooperation, and self-control, students in the UI group showed substantially fewer fights and angry outbursts, more cooperation and self-assertion with peers, and more attentiveness and engagement in the classroom. Much to our surprise, these results were not matched by the 8th graders. What had happened in the interim that affected their responses? At first, we had only our personal impressions to go on, When I'd visit the fourth-grade classes, I'd be struck by their wide-eyed innocence and their eagerness to participate. The eighth-graders, in contrast, were often sullen and defensive and, as a group, seemed to have lost their spontaneity and enthusiasm. Onset of puberty was one obvious factor for the change, but might there be others? When we delved further, we found that the older children had experienced more than twice as much trauma as the younger ones. Every single 8th grader in these typical American inner-city schools had witnessed serious violence. Two-thirds had observed five or more incidents, including stabbings, gunfights, killings, and domestic assaults. Our data showed that 8th graders with such high levels of exposure to violence were significantly more aggressive than students without these histories, and that the program made no significant difference in their behavior. 
The Trauma Center team decided to see if we could turn this situation around with a longer and more intensive program that focused on team building and emotion regulation exercises, using scripts that dealt directly with the kinds of violence these kids experienced. For several months, members of our staff, led by Joseph Spinozola, met weekly with the UI actors to work on script development. The actors taught our psychologists improvisation, mirroring, and precise physical attunement so they could credibly portray melting down, confronting, cowering, or collapsing. We taught the actors about trauma triggers and how to recognize and deal with trauma reenactments. During the winter and spring of 2005, we tested the resulting program at a specialized day school run jointly by the Boston Public Schools and the Massachusetts Department of Correction. This was a chaotic environment in which students often shuttled back and forth between school and jail. All of them came from high-crime neighborhoods and had been exposed to horrendous violence. I had never seen such an aggressive and sullen group of kids. We got a glimpse into the lives of the innumerable middle school and high school teachers who deal daily with students whose first response to new challenges is to lash out or go into defiant withdrawal. We were shocked to discover that in scenes where someone was in physical danger, the students always sided with the aggressors. Because they could not tolerate any sign of weakness in themselves, they could not accept it in others. They showed nothing but contempt for potential victims, yelling things like, Kill the bitch, she deserves it, during a skit about dating violence. At first, some of the professional actors wanted to give up. It was simply too painful to see how mean these kids were. But they stuck it out. And I was amazed to see how they gradually got the students to experiment, however reluctantly, with new roles. Toward the end of the program, a few students were even volunteering for parts that involved showing vulnerability or fear. When they received their certificate of completion, several shyly gave the actors drawings to express their appreciation. I detected a few tears, possibly even in myself. Our attempt to make trauma-drama a regular part of the eighth-grade curriculum in the Boston public schools unfortunately ran into a wall of bureaucratic resistance. Nonetheless, it lives on as an integral part of the residential treatment programs at the Justice Resource Institute, while music, theater, art, and sports, timeless ways of fostering competence and collective bonding, continue to disappear from our schools. The Possibility Project In Paul Griffin's New York City Possibility Project, the actors are not presented with prepared scripts. Instead, over a nine-month period, they meet for three hours a week, write their own full-length musical, and perform it for several hundred people. During its 20-year history, the Possibility Project has accrued a stable staff and strong traditions. Each production team is made up of recent graduates who, with the help of professional actors, dancers, and musicians, organize scriptwriting, scenic design, choreography, and rehearsals for the incoming class. These recent grads are powerful role models. As Paul told me, when they come into the program, students believe they cannot make a difference. Putting a program like this together is a transforming experience for their future. In 2010, Paul started a new program, 
specifically for foster care youth. This is a troubled population. Five years after maturing out of care, some 60% will have been convicted of a crime. 75% will be on public assistance, and only 6% will have completed even a community college degree. The trauma center treats many foster care kids, but Griffin gave me a new way to see their lives. He said, Understanding foster care is like learning about a foreign country. If you're not from there, you don't speak the language. Life is upside down for foster care youth. The security and love that other children take for granted, they have to create for themselves. When Griffin says, life is upside down, he means that if you treat kids in foster care with love or generosity, they often don't know what to make of it or how to respond. Rudeness feels more familiar. Cynicism, they understand. As Griffin points out, abandonment makes it impossible to trust, and kids who have gone through foster care understand abandonment. You can have no impact until they trust you. Foster care children often answer to multiple people in charge. If they want to switch schools, for example, they have to deal with foster parents, school officials, the foster care agency, and sometimes a judge. This tends to make them politically savvy, and they learn all too well how to play people. In the foster care world, permanency is a big buzzword. The motto is, One Caring Adult. That's all you need. However, it's natural for teenagers to pull away from adults, and Griffin remarks that the best form of permanency for teens is a steady group of friends, which the program is designed to provide. Another foster care buzzword is independence, which Paul counters with interdependence. We're all interdependent, he points out. The idea that we're asking our young people to go out in the world completely alone and call themselves independent is crazy. We need to teach them how to be interdependent, which means teaching them how to have relationships. Paul found that foster care youth are natural actors. Playing tragic characters, you have to express emotions and create a reality that comes from a place of depth and sorrow and hurt. Young people in foster care? That's all they know. It's life and death every day for them. Over time, collaboration helps the kids become important people in one another's lives. Phase one of the program is group building. The first rehearsal establishes basic agreements, responsibility, accountability, and respect. Yes to expressions of affection, no to sexual contact in the group. Then they begin singing and moving together, which gets them in sync. Now comes phase two, sharing life stories. They are now listening to one another, discovering shared experiences, breaking through the loneliness and isolation of trauma. Paul gave me a film that shows how this happened in one group. When the kids are first asked to say or do something to introduce themselves, they freeze, their faces expressionless, their eyes cast down, doing anything they can to become invisible. As they begin to talk, as they discover a voice in which they themselves are central, they also begin to create their own show. Paul makes it clear the production depends on their input. If you could write a musical or play, what would you put in it? Punishment? Revenge? Betrayal? Loss? This is your show to write. Everything they say is written down. 
and some of them start to put their own words on paper. As a script emerges, the production team incorporates the students' precise words into the songs and dialogue. The group will learn that if they can embody their experiences well enough, other people will listen. They will learn to feel what they feel and know what they know. The focus changes naturally as rehearsals begin. The foster kids' history of pain, alienation, and fear is no longer central, and the emphasis shifts to how can I become the best actor, singer, dancer, choreographer, or lighting and set designer I can possibly be. Being able to perform becomes the critical issue. Competence is the best defense against the helplessness of trauma. And this is, of course, true for all of us. When the job goes bad, when a cherished project fails, when someone you count on leaves you or dies, there are a few things as helpful as moving your muscles and doing something that demands focused attention. Inner-city schools and psychiatric programs often lose sight of this. They want the kids to behave normally without building the competencies that will make them feel normal. Theater programs also teach cause and effect. A foster kid's life is completely unpredictable. Anything can happen without notice. Being triggered and having a meltdown, seeing a parent arrested or killed, being moved from one home to another, getting yelled at for things that got you approval in your last placement. In a theatrical production, they see the consequences of their decisions and actions laid out directly before their eyes. If you want to give them a sense of control, you have to give them power over their destiny rather than intervene on their behalf, Paul explains. You cannot help, fix, or save the young people you are working with. What you can do is work side by side with them, help them to understand their vision, and realize it with them. By doing that, you give them back control. We're healing trauma without anyone ever mentioning the word. Sentenced to Shakespeare. For the teenagers attending sessions of Shakespeare in the courts, there is no improvisation, no building scripts around their own lives. They are all adjudicated offenders, found guilty of fighting, drinking, stealing, and property crimes, and a Berkshire County juvenile court judge has sentenced them to six weeks, four afternoons a week, of intensive acting study. Shakespeare is a foreign country for these actors. As Kevin Coleman told me, when they first turn up, angry, suspicious, and in shock, they're convinced that they'd rather go to jail. Instead, they're going to learn the lines of Hamlet or Mark Antony or Henry V, and then go on stage in a condensed performance of an entire Shakespeare play before an audience of family, friends, and representatives of the juvenile justice system. With no words to express the effects of their capricious upbringing, these adolescents act out their emotions with violence. Shakespeare calls for sword fighting, which, like other martial arts, gives them an opportunity to practice contained aggression and expressions of physical power. The emphasis is on keeping everyone safe. The kids love swordplay, but to keep one another safe, they have to negotiate and use language. Shakespeare was writing at a time of transition, when the world was moving from primarily oral to written communication, and most people were still signing their name with an X. These kids are facing their own period of transition. Many are barely articulate, 
and some struggle to read it all. If they rely on four-letter words, it's not only to show they're tough, but because they have no other language to communicate who they are or what they feel. When they discover the richness and the potential of language, they often have a visceral experience of joy. Actors first investigate what exactly Shakespeare is saying, line by line. The director feeds the words one by one into the actor's ears, and they are instructed to say the line on the outgoing breath. At the beginning of the process, many of these kids can barely get a line out. Progress is slow, as each actor slowly internalizes the words. The words gain depth and resonance as the voice changes in response to their associations. The idea is to inspire the actors to sense their reactions to the words and soon discover the character. Rather than, I have to remember my lines, the emphasis is on, what do these words mean to me? What effect do I have on my fellow actors? And what happens to me when I hear their lines? This can be a life-changing process, as I witnessed in a workshop run by actors trained by Shakespeare and Company at the VA Medical Center in Bath, New York. Larry, a 59-year-old Vietnam veteran with 27 detox hospitalizations during the previous year, had volunteered to play the role of Brutus in a scene from Julius Caesar. As the rehearsal began, he mumbled and hurried through his lines. He seemed to be terrified of what people were thinking of him. Remember March. The Ides of March remember. Did not great Julius bleed for justice' sake? What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? It seemed to take hours to rehearse the speech that begins with these lines. At first he was just standing there, shoulders slumped, repeating the words that the director whispered in his ear. Remember. What do you remember? Do you remember too much or not enough? Remember. What do you want to remember? What is it like to remember? Larry's voice cracked, eyes to the floor, sweat beating on his forehead. After a short break and a sip of water, back to work. Justice. Did you receive justice? Did you ever bleed for justice's sake? What does justice mean to you? Struck. Have you ever struck someone? Have you ever been struck? What was it like? What do you wish you had done? Stab. Have you ever stabbed someone? Have you ever felt stabbed in the back? Have you stabbed someone in the back? At this point, Larry bolted from the room. The next day he returned and we began again, Larry standing there, perspiring, heart racing, having a million associations going through his mind, gradually allowing himself to feel every word and learning to own the lines that he uttered. At the end of the program, Larry started his first job in seven years, and he was still working, the last I heard, six months later. Learning to experience and tolerate deep emotions is essential for recovery from trauma. In Shakespeare in the Courts, the specificity of the language that is used in rehearsal extends to the student's offstage speech. Kevin Coleman notes that their talk is riddled with the expression, I feel like. He goes on, if you are confusing your emotional experiences with your judgments, your work becomes vague. If you ask them, how did that feel, they'll immediately say, it felt good, or that felt bad. Both of those are judgments. 
So we never say, how did that feel, at the end of a scene, because it invites them to go to the judgment part of their brain. Instead, Coleman asks, did you notice any specific feelings that came up for you doing that scene? That way they learn to name emotional experiences. I felt angry when he said that. I felt scared when he looked at me. Becoming embodied, and, for lack of a better word, enlanguaged, helps the actors realize that they have many different emotions. The more they notice, the more curious they get. When rehearsals begin, the kids have to learn to stand up straight and walk across the stage unselfconsciously. They have to learn to speak so that they can be heard in all parts of the theater, which in itself presents a huge challenge. The final performance means facing the community. The kids step out onto the stage, experiencing another level of vulnerability, danger, or safety, and they find out how much they can trust themselves. Gradually, the eagerness to succeed, to show that they can do it, takes over. Kevin told me the story of a girl who played Ophelia in Hamlet. On the day of the performance, he saw her waiting backstage, ready to go on, with a wastebasket clutched to her belly. She explained that she was so nervous, she was scared she'd throw up. She had been a chronic runaway from her foster homes, and also from Shakespeare in the courts. Because the program is committed to not throwing kids out, if at all possible, the police and truant officers had repeatedly brought her back. There must have come a point when she began to realize that her role was essential to the group, or perhaps she sensed the intrinsic value of the experience for herself. At least for that day, she was choosing not to run. Therapy and Theater I once heard Tina Packer declare to a room full of trauma specialists, Therapy and theater are intuition at work. They are the opposite of research, where one strives to step outside of one's own personal experience, even outside your patient's experience, to test the objective validity of assumptions. What makes therapy effective is deep, subjective resonance and that deep sense of truth and veracity that lives in the body. I'm still hoping that someday we will prove Tina wrong and combine the rigor of scientific methods with the power of embodied intuition. Edward, one of the Shakespeare and Company teachers, told me about an experience he'd had as a young actor in Packer's advanced training workshop. The group had spent the morning doing exercises aimed at getting the muscles of the torso to release, so that the breath could drop in naturally and fully. Edward noticed that every time he rolled through one section of his ribs, he'd feel a wave of sadness. The coach asked if he'd ever been injured there, and he said no. For Packer's afternoon class, he prepared a speech from Richard II, where the king is summoned to give up his crown to the Lord who has usurped him. During the discussion afterward, he recalled that his mother had broken her ribs when she was pregnant with him, and that he'd always associated this with his premature birth. As he recalled, When I told Tina this, she started asking me questions about my first few months. I said I didn't remember being in an incubator, but that I remembered times later when I stopped breathing and being in the hospital in an oxygen tent. I remembered being in my uncle's car and him driving through red lights to get me to the emergency room. It was like having sudden infant death syndrome at the age of three. Tina kept asking me questions, and I started to get really frustrated and angry at her poking away at whatever shield I had around that pain. 
Then she said, Was it painful when the doctors stuck all those needles in you? At that moment, I just started screaming. I tried to leave the room, but two of the other actors, really big guys, held me down. They finally got me to sit in a chair, and I was trembling and shaking. Then Tina said, You're your mother, and you're going to do this speech. You're your mother, and you're giving birth to yourself. And you're telling yourself that you're going to make it. You're not going to die. You must convince yourself. You must convince that little newborn that you're not going to die. This became my intention with Richard's speech. When I first brought the speech to class, I told myself that I wanted to get the role right, not that something welling deep inside me needed to say these words. When finally it did, it became so clear that my baby was like Richard. I was not ready to give up my throne. It was like megatons of energy and tension just left my body, pathways opening up for expression that had been blocked by this baby holding his breath and being so afraid that it was going to die. The genius of Tina was in having me become my mother telling me it'd be okay. It was almost like going back and changing the story, being reassured that someday I would feel safe enough to express my pain made it a precious part of my life. That night I had the first orgasm I'd ever had in the presence of another person. And I know it's because I released something, some tension in my body, that allowed me to be more in the world. Epilogue Choices to be made We are on the verge of becoming a trauma-conscious society. Almost every day, one of my colleagues publishes another report on how trauma disrupts the workings of mind, brain, and body. The ACE study showed how early abuse devastates health and social functioning, while James Heckman won a Nobel Prize for demonstrating the vast savings produced by early intervention in the lives of children from poor and troubled families. More high school graduations, less criminality, increased employment, and decreased family and community violence. All over the world, I meet people who take these data seriously and who work tirelessly to develop and apply more effective interventions, whether devoted teachers, social workers, doctors, therapists, nurses, philanthropists, theater directors, prison guards, police officers, or meditation coaches. If you have come this far with me in The Body Keeps the Score, you have also become part of this community. Advances in neuroscience have given us a better understanding of how trauma changes brain development, self-regulation, and the capacity to stay focused and in tune with others. Sophisticated imaging techniques have identified the origins of PTSD in the brain, so that we now understand why traumatized people become disengaged, why they are bothered by sounds and lights, and why they may blow up or withdraw in response to the slightest provocation. We have learned how, throughout life, experiences change the structure and function of the brain, and even affect the genes we pass on to our children. Understanding many of the fundamental processes that underlie traumatic stress opens the door to an array of interventions that can bring the brain areas related to self-regulation, self-perception, and attention back online. We know not only how to treat trauma, but also increasingly how to prevent it. 
And yet, after attending another wake for a teenager who was killed in a drive-by shooting in the Blue Hill Avenue section of Boston, or after reading about the latest school budget cuts in impoverished cities and towns, I find myself close to despair. In many ways, we seem to be regressing, with measures like the callous congressional elimination of food stamps for kids whose parents are unemployed or in jail, with a stubborn opposition to universal health care in some quarters, with psychiatry's obtuse refusal to make connection between psychic suffering and social conditions, with a refusal to prohibit the sale or possession of weapons whose only purpose is to kill large numbers of human beings, and with our tolerance for incarcerating a huge segment of our population, wasting their lives, as well as our resources. Discussions of PTSD still tend to focus on recently returned soldiers, victims of terrorist bombings, or survivors of terrible accidents. But trauma remains a much larger public health issue, arguably the greatest threat to our national well-being. Since 2001, far more Americans have died at the hands of their partners or other family members than in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. American women are twice as likely to suffer domestic violence as breast cancer. The American Academy of Pediatrics estimates that firearms kill twice as many children as cancer does. All around Boston, I see signs advertising the Jimmy Fund, which fights children's cancer, and for marches to fund research on breast cancer and leukemia, but we seem too embarrassed or discouraged to mount a massive effort to help children and adults learn to deal with the fear, rage, and collapse, the predictable consequences of having been traumatized. When I give presentations on trauma and trauma treatment, participants sometimes ask me to leave out the politics and confine myself to talking about neuroscience and therapy. I wish I could separate trauma from politics, but as long as we continue to live in denial and treat only trauma while ignoring its origins, we are bound to fail. In today's world, your zip code, even more than your genetic code, determines whether you will lead a safe and healthy life. People's incomes, family structure, housing, employment, and educational opportunities affect not only their risk of developing traumatic stress, but also their access to effective help to address it. Poverty, unemployment, inferior schools, social isolation, widespread availability of guns, and substandard housing, all are breeding grounds for trauma. Trauma breeds further trauma. Hurt people hurt other people. My most profound experience with healing from collective trauma was witnessing the work of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was based on the central guiding principle of Ubuntu, an Hosa word that denotes sharing what you have, as in, my humanity is inextricably bound up in yours. Ubuntu recognizes that true healing is impossible without recognition of our common humanity and our common destiny. We are fundamentally social creatures. Our brains are wired to foster working and playing together. Trauma devastates the social engagement system and interferes with cooperation, nurturing, and the ability to function as a productive member of the clan. 
In this book, we have seen how many mental health problems, from drug addiction to self-injurious behavior, start off as attempts to cope with emotions that became unbearable because of a lack of adequate human contact and support. Yet institutions that deal with traumatized children and adults all too often bypass the emotional engagement system that is the foundation of who we are and instead focus narrowly on correcting faulty thinking and on suppressing unpleasant emotions and troublesome behaviors. People can learn to control and change their behavior, but only if they feel safe enough to experiment with new solutions. The body keeps the score. If trauma is encoded in heartbreaking and gut-wrenching sensations, then our first priority is to help people move out of fight-or-flight states, reorganize their perception of danger, and manage relationships. Where traumatized children are concerned, the last things we should be cutting from school schedules are the activities that can do precisely that. Chorus, physical education, recess, and anything else that involves movement, play, and other forms of joyful engagement. As we've seen, my own profession often compounds rather than alleviates the problem. Many psychiatrists today work in assembly line offices where they see patients they hardly know for 15 minutes and then dole out pills to relieve pain, anxiety, or depression. Their message seems to be, leave it to us to fix you. Just be compliant and take these drugs and come back in three months. But be sure not to use alcohol or illegal drugs to relieve your problems. Such shortcuts in treatment make it impossible to develop self-care and self-leadership. One tragic example of this orientation is the rampant prescription of painkillers, which now kill more people each year in the United States than guns or car accidents. Our increasing use of drugs to treat these conditions doesn't address the real issues. What are these patients trying to cope with? What are their internal or external resources? How do they calm themselves down? Do they have caring relationships with their bodies? And what do they do to cultivate a physical sense of power, vitality, and relaxation? Do they have dynamic interactions with other people? Who really knows them, loves them, and cares about them? Whom can they count on when they're scared, when their babies are ill, or when they are sick themselves? Are they members of a community, and do they play vital roles in the lives of the people around them? What specific skills do they need to focus, pay attention, and make choices? Do they have a sense of purpose? What are they good at? And finally, how can we help them feel in charge of their lives? I like to believe that once our society truly focuses on the needs of children, all forms of social support for families, a policy that remains so controversial in this country, will gradually come to seem not only desirable but also doable. What difference would it make if all American children had access to high-quality daycare where parents could safely leave their children as they went off to work or school? What would our school systems look like if all children could attend well-staffed preschools that cultivated cooperation, self-regulation, perseverance, and concentration, as opposed to focusing on passing tests, which will likely happen once children are allowed to follow their natural curiosity and desire to excel, and are not shut down by hopelessness, fear, and hyperarousal.
I have a family photograph of myself as a five-year-old, perched between my older, obviously wiser, and younger, obviously more dependent, siblings. In the picture, I proudly hold up a wooden toy boat, grinning from ear to ear. I seem to be saying, See what a wonderful kid I am, and see what an incredible boat I have. Wouldn't you love to come and play with me? All of us, but especially children, need such confidence. Confidence that others will know, affirm, and cherish us. Without that, we can't develop a sense of agency that will enable us to assert, This is what I believe in. This is what I stand for. This is what I will devote myself to. As long as we feel safely held in the hearts and minds of the people who love us, we will climb mountains and cross deserts and stay up all night to finish projects. Children and adults will do anything for people they trust and whose opinion they value. But if we feel abandoned, worthless or invisible, nothing seems to matter. Fear destroys curiosity and playfulness. In order to have a healthy society, we must raise children who can safely play and learn. There can be no growth without curiosity, and no adaptability without being able to explore, through trial and error, who you are and what matters to you. Currently, more than 50% of the children served by Head Start have had three or more adverse childhood experiences, like those included in the ACE study. Incarcerated family members, depression, violence, abuse, or drug use in the home, or periods of homelessness. People who feel safe and meaningfully connected with others have little reason to squander their lives doing drugs or staring numbly at television. They don't feel compelled to stuff themselves with carbohydrates or assault their fellow human beings. However, if nothing they do seems to make a difference, they feel trapped and become susceptible to the lure of pills, gang leaders, extremist religions or violent political movements, anybody and anything that promises relief. As the ACE study has shown, child abuse and neglect is the single most preventable cause of mental illness, the single most common cause of drug and alcohol abuse, and a significant contributor to leading causes of death, such as diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, and suicide. My colleagues and I focus much of our work where trauma has its greatest impact on children and adolescents. Since we came together to establish the National Child Traumatic Stress Network in 2001, it has grown into a collaborative network of more than 150 centers nationwide, each of which has created programs in schools, juvenile justice systems, child welfare agencies, homeless shelters, military facilities, and residential group homes. The Trauma Center is one of NCTSN's treatment development and evaluation sites. My colleagues, Joe Spinazzola, Margaret Blaustin, and I, have developed comprehensive programs for children and adolescents that we, with the help of trauma-savvy colleagues in Hartford, Chicago, Houston, San Francisco, Anchorage, Los Angeles, and New York, are now implementing. Our team selects a particular area of the country to work in every two years, relying on local contacts to identify organizations that are energetic, open, and well-respected. These will eventually serve as new nodes for treatment dissemination. For example, 
I collaborated for one two-year period with colleagues in Missoula, Montana, to help develop a 